Hi, everyone. I'm Viva Rumani, and welcome to KindredCast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree. Today, Alex Lieberman, the CEO and co-founder of Morning Brew Newsletter, sits with LionTree CEO Arya Borkov to share his company's formula for rapid-fire success. Boasting over one and a half million subscribers and a mind-bending open rate that tops 45 to 50%, Alex and his team of 20-somethings have taken the finance media world by storm. Find out why industry pros consider Morning Brew a must-read part of their 6 a.m. routine. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Arye here with my newest guest and possibly the youngest CEO that we've ever featured on KindredCast, Alex Lieberman, uh, the co-founder and CEO of The Morning Brew. It's quite an impressive new business, relatively new business. Alex launched a financial newsletter for millennials from his college dorm room, and it has since grown to over 1.4 million subscribers. Just an amazing number. In addition to their core daily newsletter, they recently launched emerging tech brew and retail brew spinoffs and have a number of interesting brand extensions in the works, which we'll talk about. Alex, thanks for being here, and congratulations on the huge success. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Let's put the 1.4 million in context a little bit, because I grew up with the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, and and I'm sure you did as well. So how does the 1.4 million compare to what the Axios of the world, the journals of the world get? Yeah, so I think by the numbers, we're the second largest daily email newsletter in the US behind The Skim, who has also done an incredible job. And it's funny, we were talking about this yesterday in the office because while 1.4 million is obviously something we're super proud of, the number we actually focus on most is how many people open the newsletter. As we think about being laser focused on building an audience that truly cares about our content, that is a more important metric to us. And the reason it's so topical is we, in the last few days, hit 600,000 unique opens of our newsletter. Wow. Um, so our open rate on our newsletter is above 40%. Which, which is a big number by comparison. Which, you know, industry average for daily newsletters is somewhere between 20 and 25%. But it's funny, anytime that we talk about whether it's opens or subscribers, we always compare it to cities in the US or stadiums. And so the comparison that I made yesterday, not sure if it was the best comparison, is I looked at what the largest stadium in the world is, athletic stadium in the world is. Do you have any idea what it is? Michigan? No, it's up there. (laughs) I wish it was number one. So number two is like a cricket stadium. Number one is, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the stadium in North Korea. Yeah, It's like 114,000 people. And so I think being able to visualize that, you know, at least 5X that number are opening our newsletter every day is something we're incredibly proud of. And why do you think that is? We have an audience here watching our podcast who make up a lot of the younger parts of Lion Tree, although it's a relatively young firm to begin with. But everyone tells me that it's really because it's so easy to digest and it gets all the information done quickly right in front of you. And the functionality is just so good that people open it and engage. I think part of it is we keep it stupid simple. We don't complicate things. And I think the way the business started set us up on a path where we were so incredibly focused on creating the best daily business read for millennials bar none. And so, you know, a little bit of the origin story without getting into the whole thing is my co-founder Austin and I launched the newsletter when we were students at Michigan. And the reason it launched was I was helping students prepare for job interviews, for re-recruiting for banking, sales and trading, asset management, whatever it may be. And the first question I would always ask 
is how do you keep up with the business world? And I would ask that because that's what my dad who worked on Wall Street for 25 years asked me in prepping me for interviews. And I always just assumed it was a layup question. Like I would just ask it to shake the nerves off people. But the answer from 75 plus students was always, I read the Wall Street Journal and I read it because I feel like I have to, because it's a prerequisite to say I'm well-read in business, but it's dense, it's dry, and I don't have enough time in my day to read the journal cover to cover. At some point, Austin and I were like, this is crazy. These kids are working their asses off to have careers in business, yet they don't have content that story tells the business world in an engaging way that resonates with them. It wasn't like there was one light bulb moment, but I think there was almost this fake moat that existed in business news because everyone looked at like these massive legacy players like the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Reuters, et cetera. And I think from the outside, everyone's like, how could you possibly try to take on these players from that experience with these students? We just realized that it was kind of like this smoke and mirrors where these are big players, but the audience that they cater to is not at all the audience that we're going after. And it's actually a huge problem for them from an acquisition standpoint right now as their audience continues to age. And so once we saw that opportunity, we just started building it out. Financial news, financial markets, the U.S. obviously being a huge player is a relatively mature business. You would think there's nothing new under the sun to create, but it's amazing that fresh thinking and just functionality as the kind of primary driver carries a day. It reminds me when I was a research analyst a long time ago, I was wondering every day, how would people organize themselves? And I said, during earnings season, which we're in right now, everyone's wondering like what the calendar looks like. And so I would put out this one Bloomberg to everyone every day saying, here are the conference calls of the day and here's the dial-in and everything else. And just, it's in one place for you. And I'm sure people loved it. People loved it. And then I started to add on to it news and views and that became like the basis of the research. And then they had these things called the institutional investor rankings. I remember one year people said in my ranking, sometimes I forget to kiss my kids in the morning, but I never forget to read Aria's newsletter. That's amazing. (laughs) And I thought to myself, this is functionality. It really wasn't overly complex. You can't underestimate the value provided to people when you save them time. When I was working in sales and trading at Morgan Stanley before going to do the brew full time, one of like the best client services exercises that my senior trader would do is send out a market recap on the agency mortgage-backed security market, which is the product we focused on, and just the value that our clients saw in sending out that 750-word recap every morning was incredible. And it wasn't rocket science. He wasn't a trained writer, but he was just distilling things in a way that made sense to his audience, which were his clients. Yeah, it just gets down to the psychology of the person, right? Exactly. You get up in the morning, we're all trying to accomplish the same things, no friction in our day, and optimizing the time. And so if you can create some functionality and make it easier for them, you win. I'm a big believer in you make your luck, but I also think that luck has been a component in this business. Like we launched an email newsletter, not because we were oracles that thought that email newsletters were going to have a moment. We just did it because we said, A, our consumer, which at the time was the college business student, uses their email all day long. And the second is it's cheap. And we weren't thinking of it as a business yet, didn't have money to run it. Like the business for the first year and a half costs a hundred dollars a month to run. But I think we hit at the core from a human psychology standpoint of if you can save someone time and you can also get to a place where someone is self-selected or opted into something they want from you, it's a really valuable place to be. And that's what we've done with email. Yeah. And it scales well, right? Exactly. If you're writing the email, it could scale to as many users as possible. Both the technology scales really well. Our tech costs on our email service provider scale very well as we get more subscribers, but also the content creation strategy we've taken scales well 
in addition. Like we are not an original content business. If your definition of that is reporting on breaking news, our view has always been if we take existing news stories, but we distill them in a way that our reader resonates with and explain to them why as a consumer, as a professional, it's important to them, we add just as much value. And if you look at it like the business of curation, the margin on that business is generally way higher than the business of original content. Yeah. And is that why the open rate is so much higher than averages? Because it really is digestible and easy to use? Yeah. I think part of it is we were able to work our way into someone's morning routine, which is like so incredibly sacred to someone. What are the things that bump up against us in the morning? It's like these keystone moments in someone's morning. It's like waking up, showering, working out. And the fact that we have gotten a spot in that routine I think is so important. I think it's also when you think about the product, we sit at the intersection of professional and social currency. We not only are making people smarter to make them better professionals, but also if we just think from a human psychology standpoint, especially our reader being like the aspiring affluent emerging business leader, extremely motivated and hungry, we are feeding them with information to build their currency as an individual, even outside of the workplace. Is it safe to assume that your demographic is normally split between men and women or yep. it's not just skewing towards one or the so other? So it's 55, 45, male, female. And over time, the audience has aged. And I think that's a combination of just as a company, us aging, Austin and myself aging out of school. When we first launched the newsletter, we looked at our audience as kind of being two distinct groups. One is the college student who's looking to get their first job out of school. And the second is the young professional who's been out of school for a few years and just wants to stay abreast to what's going on in industry at a macro level. We've always written for that second group because our view is the college student is always going to be the aspirational reader who wants to be that second group. And if you reversed it, we think we would end up siloing the audience that ultimately we also want to target. So everyone's probably wondering who's listening to our podcast of all age demographics. Do millennials digest financial news differently than older demographics? Or what is it about the millennials that you're attracting that it's so attractive when they look at the financial news? Is there any difference in the content? I would say there's a few angles. One is with every story we write, we try not to just say what happened or how it happened, but why it's important to you in the context of your life. I'm not someone who has journalistic experience or background, but to me, it's so intuitive that to resonate with someone, giving them examples or showing them through storytelling why this actually impacts them is important. And it sounds intuitive and easy, but most financial news organizations don't do that. The second is because again, we don't have a traditional editorial staff. We write in the most efficient way humanly possible, which means it doesn't have to be long to accomplish the goal of telling you why something's important. Again, sounds intuitive, but most organizations don't do that. And the third is we write with a voice that feels like we're talking right now. It's conversational. It's witty. It feels like a person who doesn't take themselves too seriously, but is really passionate about constantly improving their knowledge. Again, sounds intuitive to write like you speak, but most organizations don't do that. You have a functional mindset of thinking about the other person and working backwards. Yeah. It's a very like empathetic approach to life, which I think obviously always works how it lands. When we talk to our bankers, I say, when you prepare for a meeting, 95% of people talk about how it's going to launch out of what they say, but only 5% of it talks about how it's going to land to the other person, which is all that really matters. And so it sounds like your whole pivot is how your content is landing. 
we have journalists on our team who do an incredible job. And I would say, I think there's so much value to going through a traditional journalistic track. But what I do think it does is it puts you into a box of how you write. But also I think your goals potentially don't end up being aligned with the reader. I think a lot of journalists, not necessarily purposefully, will end up writing for themselves or other journalists rather than for the reader who is reading their content. To your point, I think our obsession with who our reader is and what makes them more engaged with the business world, starting with our daily newsletter, but then ultimately scaling into other things. I don't think that focus should or will ever change. So who are you viewing as your competitors for that mind share in the morning? Is it the journal, the Financial Times, or is it just anything that they would launch their day with? And that's what you want to take that space. Yeah. So I think our view is that we live in an attention and a trust economy right now. And this phrase has been used so many times, but I think that's how I frame thinking about our competition. We are competing for a very specific portion of mental real estate in someone's routine. So I think the first layer is we're competing for someone's time in their inbox. As the inbox gets more crowded because email newsletters are sexier than ever, everyone and their mother is launching an email newsletter. We have to act under the assumption that our reader is at most reading three newsletters in their morning. So it just comes down to the competition is quality. We have to make a good enough newsletter to deserve a top three spot in your inbox, or we can assume that we're not going to keep the reader. But I think beyond that, there are other things that people choose to do uh, their morning routine that are not email newsletters. That's everything from meditating with Headspace to listening to this podcast. Yeah, I think it is very much a competition for attention. And as we continue to scale into things outside of newsletters, I don't know that that changes. We're still competing for finite time, and that is the most constrained resource. So when you're giving people information or reporting on it as a journalist, or even for me as a research analyst back in the day, you have this competition between speed and breaking what is the news that people have to really get their heads around and the depth of understanding the situation which could come later. Sounds like you are prioritizing speed and functionality versus doing any sort of in-depth investigative reporting. So I would say I totally agree with that distinction. I don't actually make three buckets. I'd say one is true speed, like being the first to break the story. You get a push notification on your phone that the T-Mobile Sprint merger is being approved. That is the truest speed, which is the race to be first. Yeah. And I think in the middle is this hybrid of timeliness with also some form of storytelling that doesn't go a mile deep. It goes an inch deep, but gives you a breadth of knowledge. And then I think the third is what you're talking about, which is going extremely deep and an inch wide. And those are things like Matt Levine's newsletter or like Ben Thompson's Stratechery newsletter. It's things like that. We sit in that middle spot. Mm -hmm. I don't think we are going to ever try to race to be first. We can't add the most value there. But I think if you think about the trajectory of our business, we're actually going to move towards the other end, which is getting more specific and deeper into the topics that our readers care most about, which is, as you mentioned in the beginning, retail brewer, M-Tech Brew is kind of the first illustration of wanting to go deeper. Yeah. It's like this intersection of financial news, tech, retail, all the, I would say, sexy industries, right? Yeah. That's how Liontree is structured. Also, we call ourselves the bank for creative industries and the digital economy. So traditionally, it could go to media companies or telecom companies or tech companies, but it really will go wherever our audience and totally. our clients want to take it. And it's the same kind of skill set around execution and idea generation being fresh. To that point, that's something we're constantly thinking about, which is how do we create a defensible business that will be here 10 years from now? One of the most specific examples is 
how do we continue to go deeper on email? Because that's one of our competencies. We know how to create great emails, scale them and monetize them. But how do we also stay thoughtful about not going too deep in email for too long while we like to think that we understand media? Email could look very different three to five years from now. And so how are we thoughtful about being proactive and not just, you know, in the way that a lot of publishers were beholden to just Facebook or one platform, I would say there is less leverage from the platform with email, but there's still an amount of risk that we are exposed to that I think we need to be really thoughtful about. Ultimately, what you're getting at is the brand. Morning Brew is the brand that will build credibility beyond what you already have over time. And that space will be yours to continue to feed into. And then you'll effectively mirror the ask and the demands of your subscribers and your users into where you can take them, whether it's more in-depth or different genres around, obviously, news. That really is kind of an extension of the brand, which you'll earn your credibility for. What becomes important for us is as we think about brand architecture, it becomes increasingly difficult every new vertical we add. And the additional complexity is with Retail Brew. How do we build up the Retail Brew franchise, but also build up the individual writer? Because now we are thinking about these individual writers as talent. How do we make Haley LaSavage the thought leader in retail? for the millennial professional so that she has the ability to speak on panels at events or she can host a podcast and people will follow her. Thinking about these layers of brand, it's a really exciting problem, but it's a challenge to think about how do you balance it? That is an interesting question because when you go to, let's say, the US Open for tennis and you look at all the brands being advertised, there are very few brands that have kind of broken through. They're the same brands 10, 20, 30 years in beautiful brands, I mean, obviously, but it's hard to break in as a brand into the kind of audience space, especially in financial news and technology, et cetera. So how do you think about why you were able to break in, what's going on to the media industry and can you hold it? We've proven that we can break into it. And I think the reason we've been able to break into it is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, which is people work within the status quo and we challenge the status quo that legacy business content simply wasn't created with the emerging business leader in mind. So I think we did that very well. But as you talk about holding on to that, I think that is the hardest question that we are going to constantly have to think about because it is so easy and you see time after time, brands get sexy and then they get unsexy. And I think the other thing to think about is our reader on average is 28 right now. 10 years from now, at a time when we still want to exist as a company, they're going to be 38. How are their consumption habits or their interaction with the business world or where they actually look for content? How is that going to change? And in that same vein, our reader in 10 years, our current reader is 18 right now. For all you know, they're using YouTube and TikTok and Snapchat, never go on Facebook, LinkedIn. Or email. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do we evolve with that? I think- It comes down to not being too dependent on any one person, platform, or revenue source. I think we need to continue to diversify ourselves in those three buckets as we grow so that we don't become irrelevant. But I think that's also from a brand perspective, such an important question, which is the more we stick to just the one umbrella brand of Morning Brew and not these sub-brands, I think one... The positive is that you lend credibility to any new asset you launch. But the downside is as you lose your cool, everything else loses its cool with it because Mm -hmm. it's attached to the brand. So I think we have to be thoughtful about how we structure the architecture. Correct. So you mentioned the attention economy and your readers latching on to the content. I'm going to read a few words. Maybe you can illuminate on what they are. Our users may find it interesting as well. Can I get a hot tub? Crackdown. Kids are the future. Bad tips, that was fast. Burned book, 
Don't go there. Hold the cheese. Teamwork. Number two, fully loaded, shrinkage, cold one. Yeah, all great subject lines. Uh, <laughs> shrinkage, one of my personal favorites, as well as teamwork. I almost edited that one out, but I figured we'd go no, with it. <laughs> no, we, we have to keep it. Those are all great. These are subject lines for the email, right? Yes, exactly. So these are subject lines for Morning Brews newsletter. And I think there's a few interesting things to it. One is, where do we pick our spots in our newsletter and with our brand to be more voice heavy versus not voice heavy? I would say subject line is one of those places you want to be voice heavy. Because again, there's a lot of competition in the inbox. There are basically only two ways outside of someone just recognizing your brand that you can get someone to open. It's your subject line and it's the preview text, which is the line below the subject line. Other than that, it's a crapshoot. So we have to make sure we are so good and we stand out so well with our subject lines, but we also have to do it in a tasteful way where it actually relates to something in the newsletter where people will almost look at that as open bait in the same way that people look at clickbait. We've mixed the art and science of subject lines, which is the content team does an incredible job of brainstorming subject lines that are witty and pithy and on brand. But also we realize that sometimes subject lines that we think will absolutely crush it don't do well. Subject lines that we think will be mediocre end up being the best. For example, one of our best subject lines to date is Boeing, Boeing gone. And I didn't think it would be that great of a subject line. I didn't think that our audience necessarily relates with Boeing enough where I actually thought it would dissuade people from opening because they'd see Boeing. They're like, I'm not that interested in Boeing as a company, but it is one of the best subject lines of all time. It is the combination of having this brainstorm, but we're also scientific where we ABCD test subject line every morning. So at five in the morning, we send out four subject lines and the winner, we then send the rest of our list that winner because it can be a difference of one to 2% in open rate, which on 1.4 million subscribers is a lot of opens over the course of 252 days. And do you get involved with choosing the subject line? I don't. I tried to hold on to it for a very long time. Like even in the last six months, I would just pop into the nightly chat and add subject lines. But I realized one, the content team is just better than me at it (laughs) as much as I wanted to hold on to it. And two, I would create a lot of noise because I'm very much someone who writes things with stream of consciousness. And so I'd go through like this 15 minute brain blast of throwing out like 30 subject lines. And I ended up thinking it was kind of counterproductive to their process. Yeah. What was the last one you came up with? Oh God, that's so one of the first ones. You set the tone for the whole company. One of the most recent ones I did was something around Zuckerberg, like what the Zuck or something, some like play on words with Zuck um, because it's just so easy. (laughs) There are certain aspects of our newsletter that are incredible training for our writers that want to learn how to write in Morning Brew's voice, Mm -hmm. especially for writers that have more of a journalistic experience that want to get greater command of like their creative writing and voice writing. Things like the subject line and subject line brainstorm, that 15 minute exercise, I think are tremendously helpful for taking their quality of voice and writing a morning brew's voice to the next level. Talk us through the business plan because yeah. you have the brand, you have the demographic, very attractive for advertisers, et cetera, and you have the scale, which is ever growing. So how does the business work? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's actually I think the simplest, we monetize through advertising. We do native advertising partnerships with brands ranging from Microsoft, Discover Card, and Visa to venture-backed startups like Allbirds, Casper, Warby. Basically every venture-backed D2C brand that you see in the Union Square subway station probably is advertised in our newsletter and a ton of educational institutions as well. And the sale is actually pretty easy. It's just very simply, Morning Brew has built a captivated audience at scale. This is an audience of emerging business leaders that are high income, highly aspirational, and have massive life moments coming up in the next five years, like 
kids, home, car, diamond rings, vacation. They have not yet built those habits or attached a brand to those habits because they are the first time they are experiencing those moments. You have the ability through Morning Brew's voice to have native editorial in our newsletter that builds credibility with you and our audience the same way we have built credibility with the audience. The sell becomes very simple. It's It can be you to build this habit or it can be competitor A, B, or C who builds this habit with our reader. Who do you want it to be? Oh, yeah. It's the slope of the curve of your life where you're really kind of starting to launch into a professional it, stature. You know? Exactly. Like from a net worth perspective and spending power perspective, our reader isn't at the peak of their life. They are establishing habits that they will have for the next two to three decades to get in at that point in time, I think is incredibly important. And we've had the ability to work with these brands for that reason. So the long short is ad-based business. The vast majority of that ad revenue is in our core newsletter. We also monetize our retail and M-Tech newsletters with category partners that are endemic to those industries. We're going to continue to scale the advertising business because it has worked very well for us. But also back to my point earlier about in building a defensible business, we don't want to be too reliant on any one person, platform, or revenue stream. A lot of our business plan is done so in a way where hopefully we'll be able to monetize outside of just advertising as well. And the cost of running the business is relatively low. You have 20 people at the company now. Correct. It's obviously very targeted towards the content. What is the cost structure? How do you invest back into the business? So the biggest cost is marketing costs, Mm -hmm. simply user acquisition. And that was an incredible catalyst for how we scaled our audience so quickly. So January of 2018, we had 100,000 subscribers. Now we have 1.4 million. So in 16 to 18 months, we've 14X. And it was very simply being so focused on a simple cycle, which was, Step one, create the best daily business read for millennials bar none. Step two, grow our audience with quality subscribers in organic and paid ways. And step three, sell the story and the quality of that audience to brands. We literally just got the flywheel going. If we have great content, we made sure that we would spend our marketing dollars through paid social, through paid newsletters to make sure that we got the right people reading this newsletter. Once we got the right people reading the newsletter, sold the advertisers on these quality eyeballs that trust us to engage with content that's so important to them. When you're growing the 1.4 million from the 100,000, is it across the country? Is it international? Where do you think it can go from here? I mean, there are colleges everywhere, right? There are. And I think that brings up an interesting point also, which is in the early days when we didn't have money to spend on paid marketing, the two main ways that we grew were either through word of mouth slash our referral program. Our referral program is still 25% of all of our audience growth. So you sign up for Morning Brew, you get a referral link, you get your daughter to sign up, you get credit with one referral, you get rewards from Morning Brew as you hit certain milestones. These rewards aren't rocket science, but clearly they resonate with the audience because the audience trusts us. It's like a mug, it's sweatshirt, t-shirts, access to a VIP Facebook group, Morning Brew Sunday edition. So that was a big driver. The second was our ambassador program. We literally just through guerrilla marketing, we'd either ourselves go into college campuses, pitch Morning Brew in business classes and business clubs, or we ended up building out a network of ambassadors that love Morning Brew and wanted to get involved. We've slowed that down because as a percentage of our overall growth, it's gotten way smaller, right? Because we used to get 25,000 students in a yeah. semester, which is a lot. Yeah. But you know, when you're growing by 100,000 subscribers a month, it starts to look small. That said, I think we need to put continued emphasis on it, not just because we build a habit early, the same way we're pitching advertisers to build a habit with our readers at a certain point in time. If we can get a freshman in college to read Morning Brew every single day, they will continue to read it. 
throughout their career or at least their early career. The other thing is I've found that most of the advertisers where we're interfacing with the CMO or someone in the C-suite across the board, the way they found out was from their kids in college. So I think there's this kind of intangible value where I can't measure the ROI of, you know, the CMO of a large financial service company finding out through their kid, but there is definitely ROI to it. Yeah, I mean, the users must also be giving you feedback about what they want next. All the time. Because I would think that if they're relying on you for preparing them for the day of financial news and really getting their knowledge base to where it needs to be for their job interview, that the next step is a LinkedIn partnership yep. or how do we find you know the actual job itself? Can you help us get through that? You are the intersection point for them, the point of trust for Morning Brew to go a lot of different places. Exactly, yeah. I think that's why we need to continue to be so obsessed about how can we make our target audience's life easier and engage them with the business world. Because to your point, they have so many touch points with business. You have everything on the side of when they're in the office for 12 to 13 hours a day. What are the tools that they need to be more productive? What are certain concepts that are more evergreen that they can learn about that aren't timely business news, but they're concepts that will stay with them their entire career. Or on the personal side, they're probably someone who thinks a lot about personal finance as they are earning money, making a living and want to be judicious with how they'd spend that money. Probably a place that we can play and enhance value in our readers' lives. And to your original question, vast majority of our audience is US-based. So international is something, candidly, we haven't even put on the roadmap yet. It is a massive opportunity, obviously, because global business is a very large pie. And we get hit up by readers all the time that read Morning Brew from other countries. And it's amazing to me that they still read it because the reader in Australia is getting it at such an off time, yet they're for some reason getting value out of it. So I think that's a massive opportunity. But to the earlier point, the thing we're really focused on right now is going deeper in the industries or the interests that our readers are most passionate about. Not only so we're keeping them in our ecosystem longer. So say they look at a Daily Brew newsletter and there's a story about Google and autonomous vehicles. Well, before we launched our industry newsletters, they would have to click on the link in the newsletter if they wanted to read more because they'd have this 150 word story. If they wanted to go deeper, they'd have to click on a link and go to the original story on CNBC or Reuters. Now that we're offering them the opportunity to go deeper in that, they can stay within Morning Brew's ecosystem. Both from an engagement and an LTV play makes a ton of sense, but also we're getting the reader as a professional deeper and more in the weeds of connecting Morning Brew with their professional life and not just their personal life, which- we are hoping will unlock some non-ad-based dollars, whether it be on a B2C side from subscription or research and other things like that, or on a B2B side. I think you're also tapping into something from a psychology perspective that I think is a great lesson for all people coming out of college into the workforce. When I grew up, not that I want to say like I'm old, but like when I grew up, we didn't have email. And so when we wanted to apply for a job, we would literally write a letter out or type a letter out. You'd probably go through three or four edits, probably two or three pages. Then you'd send it in an envelope to someone's office. The assistant or multiple assistants would read through it. And it probably never got to the point that you're trying to reach. I remember thinking like aspirationally, if you want to go to Steven Spielberg and say, I want to be a movie producer, he's never going to get that email. For sure. Rather than the letter. But these days, the person actually reads exactly what's being sent to them, to the person, usually without someone reading it for them in front of them. The content that you send though is more short form. And so there's not as much thought given to the actual content, even though the person is actually going to read it this time. And so I think that when your subject lines are well thought out and obviously the functionality of your content is so good and so surgical to exactly what people need to know, it's exactly the right message, which is 
if you have an opportunity to communicate directly to the person, yep. you may as well say something directly and make an impact. And I think that's like the whole premise I'm picking up from you. you know? Well, and I think to that point, it's understanding the pattern of everyone talks about direct to consumer within the retail landscape or CPG, but like direct to consumer is very simply just shortening the supply chain or the value chain right. through the advent of technology. And that is happening in any industry and it's just building efficiency. So to your point, what we are doing with the brew, even though email is now considered an antiquated technology, we wouldn't have been able to do that however long ago. But now we have the ability to go direct to our consumer. And by doing that, we have a true relationship with them. The same way that Glossier as a beauty brand has a direct relationship with their consumer and doesn't have to find out from the retailer where they're storing their products, what the consumer thinks about the product. Yeah. Same with Allbirds, right? Exactly. Like you can go right to the consumer for a shoe that's probably comfortable and amazing, but it can go right to the consumer directly versus through a middleman. Exactly. Yeah. I think you could probably think of that type of relationship in so many industries. I mean, it's clearly just a direction we're trending in. That's pretty industry agnostic. Yeah. Well, look, at, at LionTree, we are trying to look at new models that complement or disrupt the old models. I know that both will exist for a very long time. So this media 2.0 concept that everyone thinks, you know, media is still transitioning to the, the old days of cable channels and broadcasting and all those things have a lot of money attached to them. But the new models are really, really exciting, like Morning Brew. Yep and have huge growth today and potential into the future. And it's really great to have you here to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's super interesting. And I think at a time where consumers expect more custom and tailored experiences than ever, I think the generalization is harder to pull off than ever. The question is, how can you provide this nicheness or customization at scale? And I think that's what a lot of people are trying to figure out. Yeah, aren't you glad you didn't stay on the Morgan Stanley trading desk? Definitely, uh, definitely happy with it. When I made that decision, my overprotect Jewish mom wanted to kill me because she worked on Wall Street for 20 years, but I think she's pretty happy now. Well, you tapped into something very special, so congratulations. I appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.